welcome. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Metro Life Church. It's a privilege to have you with us here today, worshiping together. Those who are in Bridge 46, that's our ministry for fourth through sixth graders. That happens during our sermon. You can go ahead and begin to make your way out now. Uh, as we dive back into the book of Galatians, if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bible or open your app to Galatians chapter 5, that's going to be our text today. The entire chapter of Galatians chapter 5 is going to be our text. But as you're turning there, if I can just have your ear for a moment. I, there are times that when we're preaching, we want it to be a message that gets through and it says, take heart. In other words, this is a message that, that speaks to endurance in the Christian faith. This is something that, that speaks to the, the perseverance that we're called to have in our Christian faith. As we live out the good of the gospel in the world around us, take heart. And I think that there's a place for that in this passage. But I actually think it starts with take these things to heart. In other words, take them into your mind let them roll around at the very core of who you are. And let me maybe put it this way. Let the things that we're going to look at in God's word today become what shapes your motivations in life. There are so many things that call for our attention in life. There are so many things that, that call for uh, this is what should motivate you in life. This is what looks like to have a good life even. But this morning, I think that what Paul is doing is so integral to our new identity in Jesus Christ. I want to pastorally ask you to take these things to heart today. Take these things to heart so that in those moments when life and the Christian life feels like it's calling for some form of endurance, you can take heart. Because you've taken these things so deeply into who you are. They are replacing what it is that has, you've been rooted in in the world and I think that's Paul's point this morning. So would you pray with me to that end before we dive into God's word? Father, we pray through your Holy Spirit today that we would take these things in your word to heart. That they would renew and transform our mind. That they would change how we see the world around us. That they would affect the way that we listen to others. That it would wash our hearts clean again. That it would be something that changes the very motivation that we operate out of as individuals called by your name. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Would you start with me in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1, and we're going to read through 6 to begin with. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Here Paul is repeating some familiar themes from the book of Galatians thus far. We've, we've seen such wonderful teaching on the doctrine of justification, and it, and it leads to these soaring glories of the doctrine of sonship and adoption into the family of God. What wonderful benefits there are for us as believers. 
And yet we're called not to just receive those benefits, but to actually have them affect the way that we live our lives. And Paul here for the first time in the book of Galatians begins to address the specific issue of circumcision. Now, we might see that today as more something that is, Paul is hearkening back to the, the call of religious acts as a part of your faith. In other words, you're adding something to what Christ did in order to proclaim that you're a believer. Paul is going to have none of this. He wants to remind us right at the outset, we have been set free for freedom. And he's going to give us a set of instructions here for running or living in the freedom that Christ has provided. We're going to see in just a moment where he says, you were running well. Who was it that hindered you? And so he comes to this this illustration of running in a way that helps us to understand what it looks like to run for Christ or live in the freedom that Christ has provided for us. See, Paul's desire for the believers at the church in Galatia is that they would live to the fullest in the freedom of Christ. He's not looking at the freedom of Christ as something that suppresses their life. He's actually seeing it as something that opens them to the life that they were created for to begin with. And he wants to say, don't turn back from that freedom. Live in the freedom that Christ has provided to the fullest. So he calls them to live free, to live in the truth, and to love and serve others. He, noticed, he notes in, in verse 5 that we have been set free through the Spirit by faith and we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. I just want to take a moment on that, that term. We eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. There's many times that you'll hear us talk here about living today in light of that day. Living today in light of the day that comes not only before the judgment seat of the Lord, but all of eternity when we have the opportunity through Christ to be in the presence of God, our Father. Now, the doctrine of justification tells us we are declared as righteous today. But there is a day coming when we will live in the fullness of that declaration. That is the hope that we are eagerly waiting for. It's the hope that informs our days today. It's the hope that informs the way that we look at our lives around us. It's the hope that we should be living out of the good of in front of others. A day when we will live fully in the goodness of the righteousness of God. What does that mean? It means the righteousness that allows us to be in his presence at all. The fulfillment, the culmination of the work of Jesus Christ, that through the Spirit and by faith, we are informed that we can eagerly await in hope. Let's continue to read in verse 7, Galatians chapter 5, verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, once again, Paul uses rather stark language, but he's calling the church in Galatia to live in the truth, not to turn back to something else. And and perhaps this is a helpful way to illustrate it this morning. He's wanting to have the church in Galatia look at their lives in a way that says there's no turning back to anything that we can add to our righteousness. 
Now just take a moment and look around the room here. You might see several exit signs. I see four, five in the room that you're in. I see two more off to the sides of the stage. Can you see the exit signs? If you were to walk through one of those, have you exited the building? No. Most likely, you're going to be greeted with other exit signs, with small arrows to either side to give you some direction, aren't you? There's another exit sign to come. And what Paul is beginning to do is he's beginning to lay the foundation of what it looks like to live the Christian life with endurance. This is where he most explicitly introduces the idea of running. I am not a runner. I'm not going to try to make that an illustration for us this morning. For the glory of God, I'm not going to try to do that. But I do understand something about the endurance of the Christian life. That I've lived. And it, and it does make sense to me from the standpoint of running. That there's an endurance to come. In study this week I heard the, the story of, of a young woman. She tried to swim the English Channel. And the fog came in and, and she was so overwhelmed by the fog after so many, many hours in the water that she finally gave up because she couldn't see the destination to come. She gave up and she got back in the boat and found out that she was only half a mile away from completing her task. A few weeks later, she went back to accomplish that task, to swim the English Channel. And she accomplished it, not only accomplished her goal, but she did it in a world record-setting time. And when the question was asked, how is it that you were able to make it this time? She said, I never lost sight of the goal. This is what Paul is talking about when he says, I want you to run the race with endurance. Why? Because of the hope that we are eagerly awaiting for. He's looking at a day to come and he says, never lose sight of that day. And no, I'm not going to start swinging, uh, singing Just Keep Swimming like Dory would. But now it's in all y'all's heads. He's saying that we, he wants to see an endurance in the Christian life. And unfortunately, in the moments of, of trial for us, that's when we're most tempted to try to add something back into what Jesus has done for us, isn't it? It's when we're most tempted to turn to something that used to satisfy. It's when we're most tempted to turn to something that seems like it will be the easy way out. It will maybe give some comfort, some soothing to our soul, some momentary pleasure. But Paul is expressing confidence in the gospel more than he is in the people in Galatia. He's saying, don't give in to what you've been told by these other teachers. You were running well. Who is it that's hindering you from obeying the truth? It's certainly not from the spirit of he who calls you, he opens up with in verses 7 and 8. And then he goes on to say that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What is he saying there? He's saying if you return to any act of the law, you have to return to every act of the law. I have the privilege of being gluten-free. And last night we were at a restaurant with some friends, and our waiter described that he's not allowed to use the term gluten-free anymore. He has to use the term gluten-friendly. Okay. And the reason is, is because there's flour in the air. There's flour in the air. Now, thankfully, the type of allergy that I have, and it is truly an allergy, I am not that sensitive to that. I'm aware of those that that would be a hypersensitivity. Certainly pray for my brothers and sisters in that state. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little gluten isn't gluten-free, it's barely gluten-friendly. A little law for your righteousness, 
requires the whole law for your righteousness. And Paul is appealing to the church, don't turn back to that. Church, don't turn back to the works of the law for your righteousness. He wants the church, we want to be a church who lives in the good of the truth. Let's continue to read in Galatians chapter 5, beginning, beginning in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, Paul is beginning to create a bracket that he's going to return to at the end of chapter 5, where he says that if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. He's creating a bracket there to show the difference in a life that has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. And we'll return to that in just a moment. But I think it's worth looking at here that as Paul is looking at the message of verses 1 through 12 to not lose gospel freedom. In other words, don't turn back to the law. Don't lose the freedom that Christ has bought for you. Verses 13 through 15 actually say don't abuse that gospel freedom either. He wants them to be in this place where they are held tightly by the gospel in the way that they live. Don't lose your gospel freedom and don't abuse that freedom either. Don't let that become something that devours your very motivation. Last night I was given a gift for my birthday. It was a tray of gluten-free cinnamon rolls. I've not had cinnamon rolls in some years. And they're delicious. And I understand this idea of wanting to devour. But the good news is that that, that tray of gluten-free cinnamon rolls, it remains primarily intact. But the temptation is there to devour. What is it in your life that helps you understand this idea of something where the gospel comes in and actually devours motivations that used to devour you? Maybe it's something like a lie. Gospel freedom means that I don't have to fear that God will cast me off from God if I were to tell a lie. I'm free from the legal penalty of a lie. But the person who's seeking to perfectly, be perfectly honest as a way of winning God's favor will be devastated any time that they slip and tell a lie. This goes against the very nature that is being created within us. The gospel assures us that dishonesty will not condemn us, but we have to ask this question, why would I want to lie to begin with? Is it because we felt that we needed to save something that we would lose if we told the truth? Are we a person that needs approval or power or the comfort that comes from success or to have joy of worth that a lie helps us to get or keep? That lie becomes a functional savior for us in that moment, doesn't it? You may think, well, I mean, depends on what the lie is. But do you see how our motivations are in the very midst of this? And this is why I made that appeal earlier today. Take these things to heart. Let them be something that inform those motivations for living. Take them to heart. A person who knows the gospel in their affections, knows the gospel intellectually, will say, I don't need this thing. 
That, that no longer becomes a functional God. I, I can tell the truth. Because if I lied, it would not change my standing before God. I'm, I'm certainly free to lie, but there's no need to lie. Why would I want to lie? You see how it begins to change your perspective and, and your motivation for living. Let's continue to read Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For, the, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, as we read these verses, we see how comprehensive the work of the gospel is. In normal religion, in world religions, there's oftentimes a, a motivation of fear. Like many this weekend, I was somewhat raptured by the four-part series, Shiny Happy People on the Duggar Family. I actually started watching it in a way that I, I could not look away. I'm not necessarily recommending it. But I think that an unfortunate aspect of that docuseries shows this, that there are good gospel truths that have horrific application in real life. It's heartbreaking. I remember at one point I called my daughter Ella in and I said, Ella, I just wanted you to see, see we're not such bad parents after all. And the challenge is working through with a 15-year-old in the same way that it is working through with a 46-year-old what it looks like to live in good of the gospel and yet not apply it in a way where our works become our new salvation. A motivation for morality can very easily become fear-based. A motivation for morality, rather than out of love, can be based in fear. And Paul is beginning to show us something in these passages about what it looks like to have these two natures at work in every one of our lives. There's the spirit and the sinful nature. Now those who have a, a new identity in Christ, sin no longer reigns, but it does remain. Those temptations, those desires, those things that maybe have even become habitual in our life. But at some point in our life, we are going to make a decision to live by one and not gratify the other. And Paul now has come to the apex of the point that he wants to make. It's the turning point in the motivation for our lives. It's the turning point in the way that we're going to live our lives in the good of the gospel. He's been very careful to not add works back in, and yet he's going to talk about a transformation in the works of our lives. We, we do well not to ignore these things, but it also helps us to understand that we have a spirit at work in us as well as a sinful nature at war within us. Don't ignore that. Don't ignore those things as we engage with our own hearts. 
See, it'd be very easy for me to turn at this point into culture war message. I actually want us to go with, at, to war with our own hearts today. I think there's a place for the conversation about the culture. This is just not it today. What Paul is addressing is the very heart of the people that made up the church in Galatia. So what Paul and the Spirit of God is after today is our hearts together. So let's not do the light work of examining the culture through these words. There's a place for that. Let's do the Spirit-enabled work of examining our own hearts. Looking at our own lives and our own motivations through these things. Now, you may hear a list like that and just think, that's everything I've been redeemed from. Praise God. Don't go back to them as a way to abuse your Christian freedom. Remember, that's Paul's appeal here. Don't go back to those things as a way to abuse your Christian freedom. He wants us to see that these works of the flesh that are so evident are something that we have been rescued from. We see this extensive list in verses 19 through 21, the acts of the sinful nature. But you may notice as you look at those things, they're not all actions themselves. They are sometimes a, a motivation or an attitude. And we realize this is the pervasive nature of sin. Sin not only overtakes our actions, it, it overtakes our attitudes and our perspectives as well. And we have been redeemed through the work of Jesus Christ from all of those things. But those attitudes, they can remain. We see the pervasive nature and the over-desires of our sin nature. We see these three words in verse 19 that say, that are dealing with the area of sexuality. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. You might think of sexual immorality as pornea. It's, it's this uncontrolled sexuality, intercourse between unmarried people. You have impurities, unnatural sexual practices and relationships. You have debauchery, a sexuality that is uncontrolled. So let, let me just make this point. Do we live in an over-sexualized culture? Yes. So did the church in Galatia. Is the gospel powerful enough for an over-sexualized culture? Paul is saying, yes, it is. My hope is not in changing the culture. Do I want to be a part of that? Yes. Do I want to be a voice to that? Yes. My hope is in the day to come when the culture is renewed to what it was intended to be all along. But I can see here that the gospel is powerful enough to overcome an over-sexualized culture. And it begins to not only give me comfort, but it calls me to something. Don't turn back to that. Don't turn back to that over-sexualized culture. You may think this just seems like Paul kind of doubling or tripling down on these things. No, Paul is, is actually emphasizing a lack of restraint and unbridled passions. See, sexual sin is a major problem for a number of reasons. One of the reasons would be this. It affects others, not just the one who is sinning. Don't give in to the lie that through your phone or through your device or, or through that, that unintended meetup or that, that encounter at work, that one night stand, that, that one off, that it doesn't affect somebody else. No, there are oftentimes many 
many other sins that are related to sexual sin. Paul's not tripling down on this. He wants us to see the total lack of satisfaction and the the compounding nature of sin that sexual sin brings. It often affects many, many others. Not just the one or two involved in the act of sinning. More than that, it displays a self-centeredness that is that is graphic in nature. It it dishonors those who are made in the image of God by treating them as objects for pleasure rather than the children of God that they are, image bearers of the Most High. More than that, it violates God's plan for marriage. And it's completely the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit we're going to see in just a moment, namely love. After that, we have these words having to do with areas of religion. They talk about idolatry and sorcery at the beginning of verse 20. You have idolatry and witchcraft. And and what's happening here is Paul is actually connecting these two words. It's not referring to the broad practice of making good things like your career into a god, making, making your home into an idol. Actually, what he's talking about are very specific occult and pagan religious practices here. And the reason that it's important for us to see idolatry and witchcraft as something so counter to our new nature is idolatry provides this. It provides an inadequate substitute for who God is himself. And witchcraft, it's attempting to fake the true work of the Holy Spirit. You see, these things remain in our hearts and in the church today. It's something that we should take care to watch out for. In verses 21, then come these words that describe how the flesh absolutely and utterly destroys relationships. Talk about selfish ambition. Some of your your translations may use that phrase. Some may use the word enmity. This competitiveness, this self-seeking motive. Then there's, there's this envy or strife. It's this coveting, desiring what other people have. These are not the things that build and make a healthy relationship. They make great must-see TV on reality television shows. They make shows like Dance Moms. Don't ask me how I know that. There's jealousy. There's zeal and injury that comes from an ego that just cannot be satisfied. There's a hatred, or what your translation may say, these fits of anger, this hostility, this attitude that's just adversarial to everything around it. Then you have four that are going to describe the results of these attitudes. What is it that comes from having that kind of attitude in a relationship? Discord or rivalries. Argumentative about everything. Every opportunity you have, you you pick a fight. There's fits of rage. There's outbursts of anger. There's divisions and dissensions between people. And there's factions or divisions where these permanent parties and warring groups. See, Paul knows the people that are there. He knows what they've been saved from. But he also sees where letting these things remain are going to utterly devastate friendships, relationships, marriages, and ultimately the church. I heard an interview with a a speaker, an author the other day. He had He'd only been a Christian for about five years. And he said, I've never heard this word winsome until I became a Christian. And everybody talked about being winsome. I just thought that was very interesting. I can be guilty of using this phrase. I want to be winsome in my witness. I want to be somebody who who is 
considering how I am communicating with those who are around me. I think there's a good place for that. But I was reminded that I'm called to be a witness first. In other words, my life has to look different. The relationships that I'm in should look different. And there is a winsomeness, there is a draw to that in and of itself. But I can never trade my winsomeness for my witness. I can never trade trying to please others for a desire to please the Lord who redeemed me in the first place. I can never let a desire to stay in relationship to cost me the relationship with my maker. See, Paul sees that these are the types of things that will destroy a church. But as the Spirit works in the people that make up the church, there will be something that just draws people to that as a witness. We're going to actually see where he trades it out for in just a moment, but we should look at the last two words that are included here with drunkenness and orgies. Now, these two words are linked as well, so when we're talking about orgies, we're not talking about something sexual in nature. They were more type of a drinking orgies where it was almost like a, a boot and rally type of a moment where people were trying to, to, to throw up and then ingest more and just continue to consume in those moments. You know, one of the works of the flesh is an addiction to pleasure-creating substances and behavior. And Paul has a stark warning for people who continue to return. He says that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I want to be careful here because what Paul is explicitly not talking about is temptation and occasional sin. What he's talking about is returning to an addictive lifestyle. What he's talking about is returning over and over again to the indulgence of the sinful nature, a lack of battling against it. In other words, show. May your life show that you have been redeemed by someone and it cost him his life in Jesus Christ. Let the Spirit be a part of the renewal that is happening in you. I, I am aware in a room this size that there are those who are sitting with us today who are battling addiction. This is not a condemnation to you. This is a moment where I'm here to say, continue to fight brother or sister. And if you need help, if you are tired in that fight, let me know. Let those who are sitting around you know. Let those who are in your community groups or in your friendship groups know about that fight so that we might be an encouragement to you. In other words, as you take these things to heart, you can take heart. Perhaps there's another way to just break this list down, to see it in categories. And notice that some of the, the sins that we see listed here, they're characteristic of religious people. Selfishness, envy, jealousy, factions, and others may be more characteristic of non-religious people, immorality and drunkenness. In other words, Paul is claiming the lordship of Christ over all of it. He's claiming the lordship of Jesus Christ over all of it. Let's continue to read in Galatians chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. You know, Paul finally gets to the place where he defines for us what a gospel-shaped character looks like. I don't know how many friendships or marriages have ever been ruined over a conflict over too much self-control. Perhaps you can think of one. What, what about those who just say, I cannot stand being in relationship with them. They're just too kind. It's ridiculous. Have you ever been around someone that was just so gentle, it just made you angry? I think your laughter exposes what Paul is after here. These are things that are desired. We seek out people who have this fruit of the Spirit. We seek out people who, who are a part of something that, that says, I see an increasing patience in you. I see a joy that is not shaken by your experiences or your circumstances. I've never encountered someone who walks through something so tragic and yet has peace. Those are things that are longed for in this life. This last few weeks, I've been a part of several funerals. It's unique for me. It's unique for us as a church to go through that many funerals in such a short period of time. Do you know when I hear the fruit of the Spirit in people's lives the most? It's in eulogies. And there's something beautiful about that. Church, let us pursue those things together today. You know, earlier today I said that if you were to look around the room and to see the exit signs, that you would, you would walk out of one of those and then you'd be greeted by, hopefully, another exit sign. I didn't test it. So if you find one missing, let Chip know. He's our administrator. You'd be greeted by another exit sign. Well, what am I kind of illustrating there? Well, the, the growth that we experience in the Christian life is gradual. Do you have a, a friendship or relationship or community or a marriage that is being affected by the things that are sinful in nature? Do not expect Christian fruit to happen just like that or overnight. The growth that we experience is gradual. You're going to walk out of one of those doors and you're going to be greeted with another exit sign. It's going to direct you another direction. But what is it leading you to? It's leading you to a life of fruitfulness. It's leading you to fruitfulness. But Christian growth is gradual. But the growth of the Spirit's fruit in the life of a believer is inevitable. It's not something that can be resisted. The roots of it are so deeply rooted internally, they cannot be shaken by the things that we face in this life. They are exposed in just the right moments. And lastly, as we consider these things at, at the close today, Christian growth is proportional. What do I mean by that? Uh, a few months ago, Stephanie and I went to see the, the Jesus Revolution movie. And if you have not seen it, I do recommend it. Uh, I don't know the full story, so, so please don't let me know all the ways that the movie's wrong. I did not live it, 
That was about a decade before my life began. But I appreciated a particular part of the movie, and perhaps you noticed it as well. Kelsey Grammer's character, Chuck Smith, real-life man, he had tremendous faith to put Lonnie in place and to, to open the door for him to minister in his church. That's faith. That's, that's a spiritual gift of faith. There was something wonderful about that. But did you notice as well, the movie and the producers and the writers, they allowed, they allowed Chuck Smith's character to also have discernment. When there was a moment where Lonnie was operating outside of the spirit, and Chuck steps in and says, Lonnie, that's not, this is not the place for that. I almost wanted to stand up and cheer in the theater because how few times... People who have the gift of faith also are allowed to have the gift of discernment. Have you ever noticed it? You're either supposed to have one or the other, and yet in the kingdom of God, they do not stand in opposition to one another. Growth in the Christian life, in the character that allows us to grow in the spiritual fruit, it's proportional. Well, I just have this outsized gift of faith, so I do crazy things every once in a while. Okay, well, let's grow in some other areas first then. Growth in the Christian life should be proportional. I think that that illustrated it so wonderfully in that movie, Jesus' Revolution. There were other things that I walked away and was affected by. But I hope that what it illustrates for us today is, is is there a place in your own life where growth has been out of balance? Whereas you're growing in Christian character, as you're seeking to operate in the spiritual gifts, as you're seeking to grow in spiritual fruit, they are not disconnected from one another. The character matters so much. Are you seeking to grow in areas disproportionate to one another? And is the Holy Spirit bringing you back to center? Is he reining you in, as it were, and saying, we're not going to go quite there yet until we grow in this area as well? See, growth in the Christian life is proportional to one another. Well, let's begin to look at these fruit briefly. What does it mean to love? Does it mean love is love? Is it this mushy definition that we see in the world? Does it feel good until it doesn't feel good and then it's wrong? No, love. It means to serve a person for their good and intrinsic value. Not for what they can bring you. Now, the opposite of love is fear. It's a self-protection. It's abusing of people. There's a counterfeit version of it as well, where there's a selfish affection attracted to someone to treat them well because of how they make you feel about yourself. No, love is to serve a person for their good and intrinsic value. Joy, a delight in God for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. The opposite of that would be a hopelessness or despair. Paul certainly does not want us to be hopeless. He says that we should eagerly wait with hope in the righteousness that is to come. So we do not despair. But there's a counterfeit of joy. There's an elation that's based on experiencing blessings and not the blesser himself. And then what can be the fruit of that or the result of that is that we will have these major mood swings based on our circumstances. What about peace? That's a confidence And a rest in the wisdom and control of God in every circumstance that you face. It's not a resting in wisdom and control that you have. 
peace. It replaces anxiety and worry. It is not indifference. It's not apathy. It's not not caring about something. What about kindness? An ability to serve others practically in a way that makes me vulnerable. But that comes out of a deep inner security. You know, church, this would be an appropriate place for me to highlight. There was a squad of people expressing kindness to us as a church yesterday. VBS volunteers all around this building preparing to serve children from this community, preparing to serve parents and families in this community this week in such heroic ways. That's a fruit of the spirit of kindness. They are serving others, laying down their own lives, even taking vulnerable steps, sharing and serving in ways that they never have before, but they have a greater thing in, in mind. They have a greater goal in mind, and so they serve out of kindness. There's goodness and integrity. No matter the circumstance or the situation that we face, that we are the same person. This is the opposite of being a phony or a hypocrite in the world today. What about faithfulness, loyalty, and courage, reliable and true to your word. Oh, how the world needs this today. It's not being an opportunist. It's not being a bandwagon friend only in good times. It's not counter to being loving. It's not counter to being truthful, but it's counter to saying that you are never willing to confront or to challenge because you are a faithful friend. What about gentleness? or humility, or self-forgetfulness, depending on your translation of the Bible. Wouldn't the world do well with a few less self-absorbed people? Maybe, to the glory of God, there's a room full of them sitting in front of me right now. Gentleness, humility, self-forgetfulness. What about self-control? This is the ability to pursue the important over the urgent rather than to always be impulsive or uncontrolled. There's a counterfeit. It's it's a surprising one. And I'm grateful to Tim Keller for this list that we've been working through here. It's a counterfeit of willpower based on pride, the need to feel in control. So it looks like self-control, but what it really is is protection and self-preservation. But self-control is the ability to pursue the important over the urgent rather than being impulsive or uncontrolled. So how is it that the fruit of the Spirit can take root in our hearts? How is it the fruit of the Spirit can, can be produced in our lives? How is it that our lives can be fruitful? I don't think that if I were to go around the room right now and interview each individual person and say, do you want to live a fruitful life? I would be shocked if I came across somebody that just said, no. So how is it then that our lives can live for the glory of God, producing spiritual fruit? Well, Paul gives us an answer here. We are to remember that we belong to Christ Jesus. Look at verse 24 with me. And those who, have, who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and its desires. Remember, we as a people... With those two warring factions within us, the spirit and our sinful nature, we are always gratifying one and saying no to the others. And what Paul is saying here is, remember that in Christ, 
You can say no to the flesh. Next, he says that because we belong to Christ, we have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and its desires. A Christian can say, I've been crucified with Christ. Something that's been done for me. It's not something that I provided for myself, but Christ's death was also my death. And in 5.24, Paul is talking about an ongoing crucifixion that we ourselves do with our own sinful nature. We put to death the old nature within us. That's one thing that we do. So how is it that we gratify the desires of the Spirit? Well, verse 25 instructs us that we keep in step with that Spirit. For some people, that's going to mean maybe stepping up. Stepping up in some of these areas to keep in step with someone. I think about my children with me at Disney World. And those days when they were younger and it was just easy for me to just kind of toss them up on my shoulder because my legs are longer. Guess what? Those days are gone. It's not because I can't toss them on my shoulder. I cannot. They're faster than I am now. And unfortunately, I trained them well in speed walking through the theme parks. I can't wait to rent a wheelchair one day and just let them push me around. What a glorious day that will be. We're called to keep in step with the Spirit. For some of us, that means we need to step up, and for others, we need to slow down. Keep in step with the Spirit. What is, the, what is that Spirit that we are called to keep in step with telling you right now? Do you need to step up in some of these areas? Do you need to slow down in others? My guess would be it's a glorious mixture of both. Because growth in the Christian life is proportional to one another. Keep in step with the Spirit. That's actually a positive for our lives. That's a positive process in our lives. We're not just giving things up. It's an active process. It's something that we do. And it's something more than just simple obedience, isn't it? See, the, the Spirit of God is a living person who glorifies in, who glories in, excuse me, and magnifies the work of Jesus. Keep in step with the Spirit. He is the one who glories in and magnifies the work of Jesus. And once we find those false beliefs that we are giving into in our sinful nature, those over-desires that lead us to sin, what do we replace them with? Christ Himself. And the Holy Spirit is always going to lead us to replace those over-desires with Christ Himself. You know, this is far more than an intellectual exercise. It's far more than just something that we're going to give time to right now, even as we close and as the band joins me on stage. See, when we worship Christ, when we say that we want to glorify Him with our lives, with the help of the Holy Spirit, when we say that we want Him to be the one that we adorn in our hearts as the one who is beautiful and more beautiful than the object that we may even have desires for, those things that we're being called to put to death in our old sin nature, as we are clearing room in our heart for the Holy Spirit to come in and to move and to grow, we're going to find that there is going to be fruit that begins to grow in those moments. It's going to change us more and more into the people that we long to be, and more than that, 
than the people that God desires us to be. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to speak to a group of middle schoolers. And I remember telling them, you know, the world tells you that what the world needs is the best version of yourself. Let me assure you of this. The world does not need a better version of you. The world needs a Christ-like version of you. And that's what the Holy Spirit is after in us as a church today. Can we stand together and sing?